This is another Health Bite brought to you by Healthy North Coast. Thanks for the intro. It's not very often you get your little brother to introduce you uh, in a work-related type thing. <clears throat> but I just want to thank you for the invitation to speak here and then also um, to thank the Bundjalung people who are the traditional owners of the land here. So I don't know if there are any of you from that nation that are here today or surrounding nations. So um, we appreciate um, the opportunity to to be here on your land. So uh, I'm going to go through my presentation and it's using a format called Prezi, so P-R-E-Z-I.com. So if you want to Google that later, you can go and watch it again or you can add comments. <clears throat> and it's dynamic, so I do change it based on people's feedback. So, so I appreciate any feedback that, um, that you can provide. Um, so I'd like to also incorporate artwork because, as they say, a picture um, is worth more than a thousand words. And so there's a few thousand here. And this is a painting by Norva Morriso, who's an Ojibwe artist. And one of the features of his work is that he uses dreams. And he also uses a style of work that um, many of our ancestors uh, used when they were doing recording things on rocks and in other places as well. So that was a form of research and a form of um, recording knowledge so that, it can, can it be, so that it can be passed on to the <clears throat> next generation. And so I'd like to start with that because um, the title of this painting is The Power Within. And so very much so this topic of uh, around two-spirit people and identity is linked to the power we have and the knowledge we have within our own indigenous communities. And I'll introduce myself and where I'm from in a minute, but before I do that, I wanna kind of go back to the beginning. Um, so the presentation's an hour, but really it's, um, the story is billions of years old. And so this is the constellation. Some of you probably are familiar with it. You can see it very clearly in the Australian sky this time of year. And it was the first constellation I recognized when I looked outside when I got here. And so in English, people call it Orion. And yeah, Orion's belt, yeah. Pardon? So in, Cree, in the Cree language, that constellation is known as Wisagijak. And Wisagijak is a trickster figure or character and one of the features of Wisagijak is that um, that character has gender neutrality so it can change or shift genders or have no gender at all so really it's an energetic force that transcends or um, predates human gender and so it's important because it tells us that our trickster character who is part of ongoing creation so creation continues our creation story is always continuing, links way back to that. And um, so um, just even in the word, and I also want to acknowledge my parents. I was going to acknowledge them when I introduced my name and all of that, but um, they're sitting in the back here. So Peggy and Stan Wilson. <coughs> um, <laughs> so my dad is a Cree first language speaker. And so 
Um, Sean and I aren't fluent in Cree, but we do know some of the concepts and um, continually trying to learn it. And so this was a major one that we heard stories about um, when we were younger. But if you break down the name of Wisagi Jack, that character, um, the, the end of the name is, means star, and the beginning means wandering or a sour star. Um, so it links to this notion that there's this energy that's continuous. So something else that's interesting about Wisagi Jack is in our Cree um, origin story, Wisagi Jack is one of the, the characters. And so this is our origin story as painted by another artist, Daphne Ojig. And um, really, it, tell, it takes a long time to tell the story, and it wouldn't be appropriate today. But So that's why I'm using the painting with her permission. But you can see some of the central kind of characters or features of the painting. And one of the things is that everything is connected. And that is a representative of that principle or that practice of relationality. So within the language, um, everything has to do with relationality. <clears throat> and then another part to relationality is relational accountability. So in being a part of creation or being a part of origin is acknowledging that everything that has life is there for a reason. And so it's got an important place within, within the cosmos, not just within a family unit or within a town or village, but within the whole scheme of things out there in the universe, going right back to the, the Big Bang Theory and whatever came before that. And so these animals um, feature prominently as well and um, and the earth and we Jack. And so I'm not gonna tell this story, but if any of you are interested, maybe Sean will tell you at some point. Um, but I wanted to use this story because um, it links to this topic and, that I'm talking about. And linking back to we Jack, in the core of we Jack's name is, is Sagihi, which is part of the stem for the Cree word for love. And so that energy, again, has to do with love. And so there's um, a few what people call or term Cree laws um, or natural law. And the main one in the language is Sagihiwewen, which is not just a, a noun, but it is a an action. So it is ongoing so that the, the main law of behavior or of the way of being has to do with showing love in your actions. So that's the core of the Cree cosmology. And so anything else other than that is, um, is an inter interpretation, an adaptation, or part of colonization. And so as many indigenous peoples, as all indigenous peoples around the world, um, Cree people have also been impacted very profoundly by um, the colonization process, which has kind of undone some of this natural order that, that allowed us to not just survive, but thrive for over 50,000 years on our traditional lands. And so similar to Indigenous Australians, we have lived continuously on our land longer than any other peoples on the planet. So you can imagine that there's an intimate kind of connection that, that is formed when you know the land so well that you're, you're um, almost, it's a part of you. 
So this is um, a close-up of the middle of the country of Canada and where that arrow is, Opasquiat Cree Nation. If any of you have GPS, it's at 101 degrees west and 54 degrees north. Those are the coordinates. Come and visit sometime. You're welcome <laughs> to come. Um, but you can see that we're on the Saskatchewan River Delta. And um, like I said, we've lived there for tens of thousands of years with some migration depending on ice ages. Um, but that's our home. And so it's, there are 100,000 lakes in Manitoba. And it's part of the Saskatchewan River Delta, which is the largest freshwater delta system in the world, also the most endangered right now. The big lake on there, Lake Winnipeg, is the 10th largest freshwater lake on the planet. It's the number one endangered lake in terms of um, pollution right now. So because of the, the landscape of Manitoba, the water drains down there into the Hudson Bay. And so we're getting pollution from everywhere, from the U.S., from all these big cities, Saskatoon, Calgary, Edmonton, etc. Now, one of the most recent studies was pretty interesting because it was saying that this pollution was causing queerness in, in First Nations, which is pretty, um, pretty sad, but yay. <laughs> so that's why we drink the water where we live. <laughs> um, but joking aside, people do call uh, Opasquiat Cree Nation the queer Indian capital of North America. And we always laugh about that because it's kind of true, but, but not really. And the reason we say it's true is because um, most of us know our relations there. And so we can look at every family and say, okay, you know, which family has a, a queer person? And um, there are a lot of us. I don't know if it's any more than any other community, but we just happen to know. And um, I can talk about the reason why some of us became mobilized um, in that community. So everything there for tens of thousands of years, um, our existence was linked to land, water, and all life. And so again, very much a spiritual belief system that had to um, centralize that um, natural law of Sagihiwewen. And so that's, that's where I grew up, and our clan or our family name traditionally was Wasanas, which means shining light from within. So again, that's a link to the cosmos and light. And then on my mom's side, her family is from Scotland, which is um, from the Isle of Skye and from Peebles, where my grandfather was from. So again, there's a connection to the sky and to light there. Um, so when I was growing up there, uh, we lived in this area called Pamaskatapan, which means um, uh, where you have to pull the canoe, I guess. Is that right, Dad? So we have to get out and pull the canoe, or some people call it a place a little off to the side. <laughs> so I guess that kind of fits for this kind of work, because often when you're doing work that addresses homophobia, sexism, racism, misogyny, all of those things, sometimes you're seen as being a little off to the side. So, so it's always good to be able to pull your canoe right through. <laughs> um, so when I was growing up there, it was very common that, you know, me and my brothers, we learned about the land from just playing outside, as most kids do. And so in the Cree language, um, the word for land is ASCII, 
and I was just talking to my dad about this before we came, uh, and that's not gendered. So somehow within the past hundred or so years, the land has become gendered in our area because there's this kind of Mother Earth concept. Um, and a lot of um, Native American posters and things like that will use that idea. Of course, the land gives birth and nurtures and all of that, but um, in the language, it's not, it's not animate. So the Cree language is, um, <clears throat> it's gendered, but it's not gendered based on sex or biology or body type of humans. It's gendered based on something, whether something um, is animate or inanimate. So it's a spiritual kind of understanding. So um, growing up there, I was not regulated in the same way that some of my friends were. So I played hockey and, um, you know, other things. And we learned to kind of hunt outside with our pellet guns and, and trap little animals because my grandfather was a trapper and stuff. So that was just a very natural kind of way of being. And when I got older, I started to realize that um, that that well that sexism existed for one and um, one of the first things that happened that kind of galvanized things for me when 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 I was about 11 or so we in our community we had community dances so they weren't powwows but that's when people came together and just danced and I remember dancing and one of my little friends said um, quit dancing like a boy and so in my head I was thinking dancing like a boy what is that what does that mean? And some of the elders there just kind of like encouraged me and they said, well, just keep dancing, just be yourself, right? So then I thought, okay. So already I could start to see how um, girls are regulated, how their bodies are regulated and how their behavior is regulated by individuals, um, but it also could be by communities, right? So different forces like media, etc. cetera. And uh, um, when I got a little bit older, um, we had skating at school, and I, of course, had hockey skates. And so it was just natural for me to bring my hockey skates to school. But when I got there to play, um, the teacher wouldn't let me play because she said, well, those are boys' skates, and um, you, I don't want people to, they don't want people to think I'm a dyke. Right, so there you again have an interconnection of a different form of oppression. So sexism often is connected with homophobia. <laughs> or mis uh, misogyny is often connected with homophobia. And so at a young age, all of us internalize these and, and start processing what that means. And so um, that didn't really affect my um, identity or who I was. And then um, much later, when I went away to university, um, I went to California State, Sacramento. And I was working there as a... Um, as I was doing my undergrad, facilitating a, a year uh, gay and lesbian youth rap group or discussion group, kind of a coming out group it was called. And in the last year before I graduated, as I did other years, I went home for the summer to Manitoba or to our, our nation. And when I came back in the fall, I went back to this youth group and <clears throat> I noticed that none of the, the native kids were there. And so I asked them, um, well, what happened to so-and-so uh, and so-and-so, all of the Native American kids that were in the youth group? And um, all of them had committed suicide over the summer. 
So it was really kind of, um, it was eye-opening, but also um, shocking. And of course it should be, right? But I, I, what I um, tried to do then was look in the research and find out like, you know, why is this happening? And I was asking people, why is this happening? Uh, and is this higher than any other population or what? And so I decided at that time that um, I would do some more investigation. And so this is kind of where the Australian connection comes in because I applied to um, the World Indigenous Peoples Conference in Education. Mm -hmm. Some of you have probably heard of it before. It's an international Indigenous conference. And that year it was being held in Wollongong. And so I applied and um, got accepted to, uh, to present at the conference. And I got my little um, acceptance letter and all that. And then, and then the conference materials came out and my thing wasn't in there. And I thought, oh, okay, there must be some mistake, right? So I um, called around and I got funding from my band, from my tribe, and then I got funding from other sources. So, you know, I had my ticket and all that. And um, then called around and they couldn't seem to find out any reason why my, my stuff wasn't in the, in the conference materials. So um, ended up going and found out from a friend that was working there that they had lost all of my stuff. And so he said they lost it because one of the main funders of the conference was a Catholic church. So the topic was seen as controvert too controversial. So we decided that um, we would just have a kind of our underground meeting anyway because there are so many queer indigenous teachers for one, but also students and it's an important topic to talk about at an education conference. So we decided we'd meet on the side of the grassy knoll on Wednesday at just after lunch. But very quickly word got out that um, the Australian and New Zealand delegates would be asked to leave the conference if they attended this underground meeting. So that was enough for me to say, okay, forget it. Um, that I wasn't too interested in the conference. So I went to the beach instead. <laughs> um, but while I was at the beach, um, I, uh, this guy was standing on the, on the sand kind of laughing because, because we were like getting bowled over by the waves. And when I came out, um, I thought, hmm, he looks like an elder from North America or something. And so I went and started talking to him, and sure enough, he was. His name was Jerry Brown. He was from the Flathead tribe in Montana. And I told him what happened, and he said, oh, don't worry about that. Just come, come back to the conference. So we went back with him, and, um, and when we got back, they had an open mic session. So he said, okay, here, we'll go talk about this at the open mic. So we stood in line. And just as we got to the front, they said, open mic is o over. So we were like, okay, forget it. And he said, just be patient, be patient. And so the conference went and it ended. And then on the last day, um, just uh, out of obligation, I guess we went to the closing ceremonies. And it's in one of these huge stadiums. And they had like everyone wearing their traditional regalia from all their nations. And it was quite a production. And they even had people parachuting out of the out of a plane unfurling the Aboriginal flag and stuff. So, so that's how it was. <laughs> and um, 
And when it came time to hand over the regalia for the next conference, um, they, you know, they make a big issue of this too because it's kind of a sacred time. And so they announced that the next conference was going to be held in the U.S. and they asked for the U.S. delegate to come up. And people just kind of looked around and, and nobody moved or anything. And this is like thousands of people. And then slowly, little old Jerry gets up. <laughs> it was him. So he took his time and he walked all the way to the front of the, through thousands of people, got to the front of the stage, graciously accepted the bundle for the con next conference. And then he told a story about, um, in his nation, um, the Winkte. The Winkte is a person that um, the Lakota and Flathead people can exist without. And today we would like call that person a two-spirited person or interpret that as somebody who is queer, right? So, so, and then he talked about how we can't have conferences or meetings or community even and say we're inclusive when we exclude people that are essential to being there. So, so at that point, um, things kind of got validated for me, but also it made me, um, well, it taught me a few things. One is to be patient. <laughs> And the second thing was that um, things happen when they're supposed to happen, but sometimes you have to catalyze that a bit. Um, and then it also made me realize that I wanted to do research in this topic. So that's kind of some of the background about why this was personally important to me. Um, so throughout Native American nations, there's a long history of what we would call gender variance. So sex is the biological sex, and even within that, there's a whole range. So um, there are more intersexed people in the world than there are indigenous people, for example. So it's just, you know, it's part of the spectrum of biology, and gender is cultural. And so the term two-spirit has come about to kind of address a spectrum or a gender diversity. And the two and two-spirit doesn't mean male and female, as some people have before it means be going beyond um, a gender binary. Um, so I'm just going to kind of skip through this a bit because um, so you know of course this links to our individual actions and the way we treat each other and then that links to systemic or institutionalized forms of oppression that interconnect and so I think you've all heard this you know the saying that's so gay in schools, it's very common. And I just wanted to show you um, this here. So this is a website called nohomophobes.com. And these are homophobic tweets on Twitter. And so this is live. So you can see that per second how many homophobic tweets are and then if you want to go to the site later, you can go look down here and see what they are saying. It's, it's recording it in real time. And so this is based out of the US, and so really this is like just Australia, because <laughs> this is the 29th, right? And so in the US, it's still the 28th. Um, so this is starting here. And so if you imagine a child, um, not that children are on Twitter necessarily, but these are the messages that are out there continually. So something that seems as seemingly innocuous as that so gay really um, impacts people in a way that's internalized. 
just kind of seems a bit paradoxical in a way, something you said when you said that there were these Indigenous youth who'd suicided over the summer break, which is a tragic thing, and yet the message I'm getting is that, in fact, the Indigenous community... Yeah. Well, you just saw that, you know, like, that's just one little example, right? You have television, you have social media, you have parents, you have family members, you have mayors, you have every single strata of society that, that contributes to that. And, and probably the most powerful place that perpetuates homophobia and non-safety for not just Indigenous kids, but for queer kids is schools, right? So, yeah. so I'll get into kind of how that happens. So you've all heard this term before. Um, faggot is a bundle of sticks. And um, the violence dating back to the time of Columbus. So um, this isn't a, an original photo, by the way. <laughs> it's, a, it's a painting, but um, so you'll see in here that one of the practices that Dalis Cassis, who was a priest that traveled with Columbus and then later wrote, uh, wrote and published his diaries and translated them into many languages, documented a common practice that Columbus did when he landed in indigenous nations. And that was he was confused by, and not just confused, but angered by gender variants. So people that didn't fit the gender binary. And so it was common to collect them up like a bundle of sticks and burn them. And so that's where the term faggots, when the term faggot started to be used in North America. And so um, he would burn 13 of them to stand for Jesus and the 12 apostles. So it was very much linked to a religion as well. So you have violence against the people, you have violence against the land, and um, you know, taking resources and all of that. So you can see very quickly that if you were one of these people that was not fitting a gender binary or didn't want to through expression, clothing, or actions, or whatever, um, you would very quickly hide um, who you were. And so we're talking about 500 and some years. So over generations, that's internalized. So it's quite amazing, actually, that our teaching, some of our teachings are still intact that are um, positive. And you know, you all know about the Holocaust, Holocaust and the pink triangle and the black triangle that was used to designate women who were seen as sexually deviant um, and the symbology today. So there have been governmental policies and actions that have threatened the integrity of Native people's families, relationships, and other loving partnerships, communities, and nations. So. It's not just individual actions and name calling, it is um, purposeful policy and policy development. And the Indian Act is one of those things that dictates every aspect of our lives. In the Indian Act, it, at first it didn't even recognize women. So, you know, there's a lot of misogyny in that as well. It only recognizes 
recognized heterosexual relationships. So aggressive assimilation policies, which lasted for over 100 years in Canada, official assimilation policies, and today some would argue they're still in existence, have attempted to displace our own understandings, practices, and teachings around sexuality, gender, and positive relationships and replace them with Judeo-Christianity. And that, that was policy in Canada for over 100 years. So those influences are the Indian Act, which I mentioned, the residential school era, which lasted for 100, over 100 years. Over 150,000 kids went through that system. Um, assimilation policy, religious perspectives and actions, and then fundamentalism. Fundamentalism even within our own native spiritual traditions. And that's a really tough one to address for those of you that are Aboriginal um, or even for those of you that are part of a spiritual tradition. It is really hard to talk about with elders because they've gone through a lot of these assimilative processes and a lot of them don't acknowledge it or they don't know. You know, they say they haven't, but you, you can bet um, they have when they start excluding kids and stuff. So, so fundamentalism um, has happened in all different religions and spiritual traditions. So the impact of all of this is that LGBT, Aboriginal youth, suicide rates are 10 times higher than any other group in Canada. Um, male, two-spirit male suicide attempts, 21% had attempted suicide. Females, 39 to 40% had attempted suicide and for transgendered native kids um, almost 60% had attempted suicide so it's a really big concern um, and extremely high homelessness rates and we're doing research right now on homelessness and two-spirit community um, so a combination of anti-trans with structural and individual racism results in devastating levels of discrimination for trans um, keep youth, so extreme poverty, high HIV rates and high suicide rates and we're finding that trans identified kids are dropping out as early as third grade. So you think about that, you think about a third grader in your life, what would make a third grade kid drop out of school? Well, the school is not a safe space for trans kids or for, for queer kids. Um, the school climate survey, this was done in 2011, but it's still relevant. 70% um, 70, 70 of LGBT youth of color experienced harassment at school. And harassment was not just verbal, but also physical and sexual harassment. 10% hear homophobic comments from their teachers. Um, this is one, one little girl from Winnipeg who um, started a campaign called Pink for Bella because she wanted to use the girls' washroom and the principal of the school wouldn't let her. And so she ended up moving to another school district. But if any of you are on Twitter, you can um, send her a positive message or Google Pink for Bella. So this leads to research on, um, well, what does two-spirited actually mean then? And how can an empowered identity exist given all of these kind of negative colonial in influences and um, homophobia, sexism, racism? So in doing research, and um, this was the research that I did for my dissertation and continue to do today, 
um, try to find the answers from within the Two-Spirit community. And that's why I started with that painting, um, The Power Within, because really the answers are there. We just need to find a way to interpret them into a modern context. Um, quoting Sean's work, <laughs> um, uh, I think it's really important to acknowledge and address um, the way that research has kind of um, marginalized some groups, but it also can be a way to really open up the conversation. So I try to use an indigenous paradigm, but also um, think about queering methodology as well, and what does that mean? What does it mean to queer methodology? So for those of you that do research, or those of, the, those of you that are teachers, or, or lecturers, or whatever, how can you queer your pedagogical practice? How can you queer your thinking? So, so there's a lot of anthropological writing on um, what two-spirited means or what gender variation um, meant to non-native people seeing indigenous peoples. And so it was very confusing for a lot of them. And ultimately, they always wanted to know are you male or female? That was a question. Always frame within, from within a binary. And what they found was that um, almost every nation had some kind of documented gender continuum or gender variance. And some, some had institutionalized forms of gender, like the Navajo, which have four or five specific genders in their language. And others, like Cree, that don't have a term for queer people because it's just part of norm, normal. So, you know, there's a whole kind of spectrum there. So the contemporary definition of two-spirited is Aboriginal or Indigenous people who are gay or lesbian or bi, or the whole range of gender categories, traditions wherein multiple gender categories and sexualities are part of the institution of that culture's cosmology, um, gender diversity, um, drag queens, butches, all of that. And then also that there's a connection to spirituality and a connection to land. So there's that that's in that definition as well. What it doesn't mean is that somebody's part male and part female, um, although some people may identify that way. Um, I am all female. I don't think of myself as male at all, but yet I identify as two-spirited. So it's kind of an umbrella term. And so... Like I mentioned earlier, the two in the term is confusing for people because we're so used to binaries, we automatically think that means male-female, when in fact it could mean land and the cosmos, or it could mean queer and indigenous or whatever. So there is a two-spirit movement that has been happening since the 90s. The term came about in Winnipeg in the 1990s as a way to address the unique positionality of Indigenous queer people and also um, to form some unity um, with, uh, and community. So one of the things that came out of this research was the coming in theory and people describe it as coming into the circle. So uh, you've all heard of the coming out theory and there's the stages to that, but coming in theory was uh, a way of um, recognizing relationality and relational accountability. And so for the people that were interviewed, um, all of them had really strong relationships when they were very young. 
they had established relationships. It may not have been even with people. Some of them were, you know, they had a pet that they felt really, um, you know, that was like their best friend or they had a relationship to the land or, or whatever. And then at some point they had to make a decision to um, not identify or to suppress one part of who they were. And so that, that identity became fragmented. And so for people, um, it was very common that they moved to the next city or the next town to get away, either from their family or their little community or whatever. Um, so cutting, basically cutting loose from their, their kind of past history. And that caused a lot of pain for many people. Um, and the other thing is, um, was finding out where where we belonged and where we didn't belong. And so that's kind of um, acknowledging that there's a lot of class oppression, um, misogyny, racism within the mainstream gay community too. And so for many of the people that took part in this study at least, um, especially the um, male identified people, they had to turn to survival prostitution because there were no other options because they couldn't get hired in the city because of homophobia and racism. So, so coming in meant um, creating your own community or coming back into the circle, but also not just an individual responsibility, but an institutional responsibility to make space for everybody. And so again, it's not just about individual actions, it's about a community saying, um, we have a role and a responsibility, and so what can we do to make safe spaces, not just safe, but welcoming and loving spaces for everybody. So uh, LGBT Native people's identities represent an interconnection of spirituality, sexuality, culture, gender, and land, and empowered and resilient identities formed in response to and in, in the face of often overwhelmingly harmful government policies and individuals and groups alike followed a process of coming in. So we like to use that term coming in now. Uh, so in, change can be individual obviously or it can be systemic. And um, kind of if you look at that spectrum and I always say this if I think all of you are here because you're, you're towards the awareness advocacy action part, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Um, I don't know how many of you would like it if I just said, well, I tolerate you. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be there. And I work in the College of Education and I always tell students, if, if you can't set aside your own beliefs to kind of move to this end for a queer student, then please don't be a teacher. I don't know what you can be, but just get out of here. <laughs> because um, our belief systems really, um, really impact the lives. And, and the number one factor for suicide prevention is if a child has one person they feel like they can be themselves around. And that is like such a simple thing, one person. So if you think about those suicide rates, that all of those kids did not have that one person. So if you're a teacher, if you're a healthcare provider, or if you're a counselor, or if you're a person walking down the street, I think you have a responsibility uh, and hopefully the compassion to be that one person, you know, to anybody. 
So um, we try to resist colonial ideologies about sexuality, gender, and legal rights, resist hierarchical oppressive colonial laws, and address homophobia and transphobia in our own communities and even the language we use. So I've stopped using the term gender roles because a role is an, you're acting when you're in a role. And for many people, they are acting. So I say importance instead. So what is your importance? What is it that you're good at? Each nation and each individual has a right to be sovereign, and that includes sovereignty over your own body. And so that is kind of the core of it right there. We cannot be sovereign as Indigenous nations if people don't have sovereignty over their own bodies. And uh, especially women know this. Your bodies are regulated by, um, by society, by, by laws, by policies. But you know, all of our bodies are beginning with people telling you what to wear or whatever. So that is all part of a colonial mindset and process. So we have the right to sovereignty. And then going along with that, also gender self-determination. So we talk about self-determination as Indigenous nations, but really we can't, you know, again, it's about our own sovereignty and the right to choose what, whatever gender we want to determine. And so this all links to the Idle No More movement, as Sean mentioned in the beginning. I Don't Know More is a social movement that was started by four women in Saskatchewan, in Saskatoon actually, and has now spread around the world and hopefully some of you have heard about this. If not, you can look online at idlenomore.com and you'll see that there are Indigenous people in Australia that are part of the movement. And, and really it is about addressing um, Indigenous sovereignty, the protection of land and water and, and human rights as well. So it's very much a part of um, bringing in um, queer perspectives, feminist perspectives, and thinking of ways that we can work together to protect um, the land and the water. So there's some, a lot of positive things going on in Canada and elsewhere, um, anti-discrimination policies that are ex extending beyond um, just gender but, and sexual orienta orientation, so gender identity, gender expression, so that is the clothing you wear, and two-spirit identity, so this was passed at our university. We have a queer sweat lodge, so we're opening spiritual spaces too, because that has been a place where many Indigenous people that are queer have felt excluded. And even if it was a tradition your parents did, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, um, the reality is sometimes our own traditions are killing us. So we have to find a way to, to adapt or to kind of go through all the layers of colonization that have impacted our own traditions. So in our own community, um, you know, people use the circle as a model in Cree culture. And then I was going into schools and seeing that they're doing a ceremony in the morning. They're getting the boys to sit on one side of the circle and the girls to sit on the other. So that in itself is not a circle. And people say, well, where did the two-spirit people go in the circle? And the obvious answer is the inside, in the circle, right? <laughs> not out in the hallway. So, um, so that's been a challenge with elders because, like I said, um, for over 100 years, um, the residential school imposed this binary. So they think that that was the reality forever. And, um, so you have to do it in a respectful and kind way, but um, 
that's that's sometimes a challenge. And we've had um, the rainbow flag at our grand entry and other things. So admission forms and things can be expanded to include more genders. This is the Sagawayo High School, which is a native high school. They're Gay Straight Alliance. They rainbow flag at the grand entry at our powwow. And um, coming into the circle, so that's that's a two-spirit drum that some of us made. And I like this one, there are no closets in a teepee. <laughs> so the power is within, and not just within Indigenous communities, um, it's within all of us. So this is kind of a call to action for all of you, or call for you to do interventions in the ways that you're comfortable and knowledgeable and skilled at doing. So um, with that, I guess i uh, just say thank you. And if anyone has questions, we have about 10 minutes. Well, unfortunately, I grew up too and thought that two-spirited is a term for transgender people or transsexual people. Would your tribes have then a term which transgender people or transsexual people use in specific apart from two-spirited? Um, I think transgender, trans people, um, some of them use the term two-spirited, so it is kind of an umbrella term. And in some nations, they, they did have a specific term for people that were trans, what we would say as trans today. I know in um, Plains Cree, um, there is a term for for people, so not in Swampy Cree, though. The other question would be, I think you said there's a tribe which has like five different genders. Yeah, they're defined along a feminine masculinity scale. So um, manly man <laughs> to femi femme, I guess, <laughs> woman, continuum. Um, Wesley Thomas is someone that's, someone that's written about that, so you can look up his name and he's written about the genders in um, Dene or Navajo. So thank you very much for the invitation and if you have questions after you can come and discuss with me or you can send me an email, I can give you my email address, but um, which means thanks to each and every one of you. Thanks for listening. Check out healthynorthcoast.org.au for up-to-date and reliable health information in northern New South Wales.